Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. morning Trinity Church family. It's good to be with you today for our what is study four of four, uh, our final uh, look here at some of Elisha's ministry, the early part of Elisha's ministry in Israel. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 6, 2 Kings chapter 6 verses 1 to 23. Just as you're turning there though I just want to thank you Trinity Church for this opportunity to serve you. It's been, uh, I hope these few chapters have encouraged you these past few weeks at the goodness of God and the life held out to us in Christ. Um, I have missed so much doing them for you in person, though. And uh, Lord willing, we, we would plan to be with you next summer, summer 2021. But it's a long way off. As we've seen these past few months, things can change uh, very quickly. So we hold that loosely, although we plan for it. Uh, and we say uh, we give ourselves to the Lord and, and to, to his plans for us in that way. Uh, so I just want to assure you of our prayers for you. We think of you often. We pray for you often. We love you and we miss you. And um, it's been good to be with you. Uh, and, and I hope that we can see you uh, in the not-too-distant future. 2 Kings, chapter uh, 6, verse 1. Now the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, See the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us there to get a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. Uh, But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it up. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servant, saying, At such and such a place uh, shall uh, be my camp. But the man of God sent to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved him from there more than once or twice. But the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called to his servants and said to them, will you not show me of who of us is for the king of Israel? That is who is a spy. And one of his servants said, none, my Lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he's in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came there by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God arose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said oh lord please open the eyes that he might see so the lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around elisha 
And when the Syrians came down against him to attack him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw him, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Elisha answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Let me pray as we turn to God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, unblock our ears, stir our hearts, soften our hearts, that we would behold Jesus, the Lamb of God, who came away to take away the sin, who came to take away the sin of the world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amazing grace must be one of, if not the most well-known or most popular hymn in the world, in the Western world. Why do we love that song? Well, there's maybe lots of reasons from the tune to, to the words. Whatever it is, certainly the, the first verse, it, it narrates, doesn't it? It, it, it narrates a, a longing that's lodged deep within the soul. A longing for redemption and newness of life. That's certainly one of the reasons I love it. And it's redemption that can only come about by reversal. Do you know, you know the words, don't you? I was a wretch, but now I'm saved. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It's a hymn about the glory of God's grace to us in Jesus, which is shown because he's able to do what no other can. That is reverse the irreversible. Make the dead live, save a wretched sinner, give sight to the blind, make the spiritually lost and spiritually dead found and alive. Friends, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 to 23, we come to two staggering passages. I, I hope you just got a sense of that as we were reading through them. They're, they're wonderful. But they're both texts all about redemption. Redemption in the first part, from debtors. The man is in difficulty. He, he borrowed an axe and needs re- redeemed from the, the loss. And in the second part, we see redemption from armies. Elisha is surrounded and manages to trap the Syrian army. They're both redemptions that come about through reversing the irreversible. Life is given again to this man because Elisha does what? He makes the iron float. He reverses the laws of buoyancy and brings life again to this man from what would have been almost certainly meant servitude to pay off the debt. And Elisha, with the host of Syria surrounding him, opens the eyes of his servant to the armies of God, closes the eyes of the Syrians, 
that what looks like scoring an open goal from them, the net beckon, scoring an open goal, the armies of Syria with little Elisha and his servant standing there, their eyes are closed. It should have been like taking candy from a baby for them, but not quite. They become blind and Elisha's servant sees and there's redemption for Elisha. They, they escape this. And so this passage just has one thing to say to us, both these texts together. One thing to say that there is life to be found in Jesus because he alone has the power to reverse the irreversible. There is life to be found alone, redemption to be found alone in Jesus because he alone has the power to reverse the irreversible, the unreversible. Now, just before we proceed, I want to put two big warning signs up as we look to tread where the Bible treads and walk our biblical line. Two big warning signs. If you're going to tune out this morning, don't tune out here. We need to hear this as we go on with these warning signs just flashing next to us. I want to give us some caution. I remember growing up when we had holidays in the Lake District, we would often, my dad would take us and drive on some very steep roads, two of them, the Hardknot and the Rhinos uh, Passes. And we had pictures that often we would arrive there. And before you entered the pass, we would pull the car over. And my sister and I would get out the car and stand next to it. It was like 15 or 20. I don't know. When I was that age, it felt like 100 warning signs there. Before you go in the pass, no caravans. Caution of ice, steep gradient. Every kind of warning sign you can picture in the, the highway code handbook, it was there. It was like there are loads of cautions before you proceed. Proceed and you get something beautiful, wonderful, but... There are cautions to be had. You're, you're about to drive on the steepest road in England. They're narrow and dangerous. Be, be aware. And so as we proceed here, I want to give you two warning signs. Number one, the first one. The caution is that we will, because God has the power to reverse the irreversible, we assume he will deliver us from those situations today, right now. Now, whatever our difficulty is and our our hardship in our situation, God, of course, might. But that is his to give. I'm sure many of us can think of times God has provided work or medical healing or housing or a restored relationship. And he has reversed and changed something that looked lost. But of course, in his unsearchable wisdom, he might delay the deliverances in some circumstances or even delay them for years, months or even until death. Or ultimately one day we will be delivered. The reason for this warning sign is the danger, of course, by some sort of prosperity gospel type teaching. Oh, trust Jesus and your health will be perfect. You'll have loads of money. Whatever you want is yours. And of course, the scriptures don't teach that. And of course, your life experience teaches you not to expect that. So that's one warning sign. The other one on, on this side is a second one. And, and it's the danger of wanting to avoid that extreme. We can go the other way and rob Jesus of his power. And we live with a kind of fatalism and, and become, can become kind of functioning deists. Yes, there's a God. He's creator. He started everything. He's in heaven. He loves me. But I don't think he really cares or has much interest in me here today in July, August 29, uh, 2020. And this passage and the scripture as well teaches us to say no to that. We, we don't preach a prosperity gospel which offers death. 
but nor do we preach a rationalistic form of deism that's befitting of an Anglican vicar in a Jane Austen novel or an ITV drama. You can picture the camera sweeping around, can't you? And this vicar's there with all these kind of meaningless, empty platitudes, uh, you know, during the Enlightenment. And, oh, no, right? We avoid both prosperity gospel and kind of rationalist deism that's kind of anti-supernatural. No, Jesus has the power to reverse the irreversible. And knowing that, I want to give you just two applications from both of these here. Firstly, as we look at this man with his lost axe at the bottom of the Jordan, we learn that nothing is too small in our lives for God to want to change or reverse it. Nothing too small, nothing too insignificant for God to do his work. That's what's happening in the passage with the axe head. It almost seems bizarre for Elisha to care. Here's Elisha. He's made a jar of oil keep pouring. He's raised uh, a Shunammite son from, from, from the dead. He's worked with Naaman, this outsider, to bring him life and made him clean and cured his leprosy. He's done these grand things. But here's this prophet, someone working with him, this man who loses a bit of iron in the water. It seems bizarre Elisha should care. This text follows stories of international politics, of kings and generals, of foreign affairs of between Syria and, uh, and uh, Israel. Military strategy, national crisis, that's what's going on in all the passages around it and, and some of two kings to come. And in the middle of it all, God rescues this man's axe to save him from servitude and debt. There are big national, international events around us. COVID, racism, rioting, border scuffles between China and India. I'm recording this. By the time it goes up in a couple of weeks, there's probably going to be more. Who knows what the story will be then? But one commentator puts it like this. The greatness of God in large measure consists in the fact he is faithful in little. Friends, we make a huge mistake when we carve God out as a kind of CEO type of God. A God made in our image who only deals with the high level kind of boardroom meeting stuff, big picture events of the world. And even with that, he may or may not be interested. But would he care for me, ordinary me? We make a mistake when we make God like that. A God who wouldn't care for the ordinary details of a believer's life. No, this commentator goes on to say, the hairs of your head are numbered. God cares about your axe head. Friends, tomorrow, this week, just pause right now where you are. Think what's in the diary. Monday morning, Wednesday evening, Friday afternoon, what's in the diary? And we have to be careful and not allegorize too much but what in the diary feels like a bit of like a lost axe head at the bottom of the d or the dawn irreversible unretrievable sunday school children listen up to me now please tune back in um i'm guessing schools will be back in some form in a week or two how are you feeling about it excited scared unsure maybe if some of you are going from primary school to secondary school That might feel quite funny. I want you to know that God cares how you feel about it. He cares how you find school. The good days and the not so good days. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He cares for you. Isn't that amazing? 
He wants you to pray, to speak to him, to tell him when things are hard with your learning or with your friends. Ask him for help when your tummy has that feeling when it's all in knots. Truth groups, students, it's the same. A year of disrupted learning, exams missed or cancelled. Much has come in your way that you weren't expecting, but God cares for you in that. Friends, all of you, young and old, God has concern for your simple needs. He has power to work, change and deliver your genuine needs. And so I would encourage you this morning, pray to that end. Nothing is too small. Don't make God a kind of CEO kind of big. No, he cares for the little things. He comes forth and wants to help, to deliver, to be near. Nothing is too small. So practically now, think of your diary this week. What's in it? What can I give to God? What difference would it make knowing that he cares about that and wants to help me in it and has the power to work in it? Nothing is too small, too insignificant. And secondly, nothing is too difficult. I would love more time with you on the second part of this. Uh, Our text here, verses 8 to 23. I would love more time with you. Isn't it just amazing? Much of the story moves about the theme of sight, doesn't it? Verse 13, the king of Assyria tells the men to see Elisha. Verse 17, Elisha prays his servant can see the horses and chariots of fire around him. It's amazing, verse 17, isn't it? It's like that moment at the end of the Avengers movie. If you haven't seen it yet, I'm sorry, it's been out a while. But there's Thanos with all his legions behind him. And they're standing facing, I think it's maybe Thor and Captain America. Iron Man might be somewhere about, kind of lying on the tatters on the floor. The situation's impossible. There's Thanos about to conquer the world again versus these two little men but then do you remember if you've seen the film the the sky kind of opens and and all the armies of the avengers arrive and you see the clips on youtube where people in the cinemas are going crazy yeah the good guys have come help is here just as a a little aside it's worth reflecting here we don't have time to to say much more about it but it's worth reflecting of us how many of us live our lives believing only what we can see is real or there how many of us live our lives believing that only what we can see is real or there ever ever thought about that i had a minister in 2018 reformed evangelical if i told you his name you'd know who he was he's of our tribe and i was speaking to him sitting on the top of buchanan street in glasgow on the steps outside glasgow concert hall we had lunch with him and, and we were speaking together and you know, if I was to tell you, you'd know who this man is, reformed evangelical, all of our tribe. I'm sitting there speaking to him, and he told me that that year, it was the summer, I think it was June or July, that year so far, he was sure he had been in the presence of or entertained at least two angels. Now, we don't have time to go there. I'm sorry we don't have more time. You can maybe use the discussion questions to help. But, but this is a, a warning for us here just to ward off a purely rationalistic enlightenment kind of christianity that squashes the supernatural no god is working through and in things that we can't see and we should take heart by that take courage maybe we need to ask god more lord let me see what's really there that i can take heart and courage that this impossible looking meeting this impossible looking conversation this impossible looking stand i'm taking for jesus that i'm not alone he may not show us, he, he, but he may. As we walk through depression, 
or marital infidelity or family breakdown. He may not show us, but he may. And either way, we'll keep going on, leaning on Jesus. So a lot of it evolves around sight. And in verse 18, the armies are there rushing Elisha. And Elisha, verse 18, prays for blindness, reverse sight for the enemies. And the Syrians are blinded. Elisha then takes them all off to Samaria. And when they get there in verse 20, Elisha says, open their eyes. Now, again, there's much to be said here about how Elisha treats his enemies. The, the Israelite king wants to slaughter them like a hunting fish in a barrel or, or sitting ducks, you might say. But Elisha says, no way. They feed them and they're sent home. And right there at the end of verse 23, between Israel and Assyria, at least for a time, uh, Israel and Syria, at least for a time, there's peace. Now, in that whole narrative, there's lots there, but all we've really got time to say for is to say is that there's nothing too hard for God. Elisha and his servants standing with the armies of of Syria approaching them, and God blinds them, takes them to Samaria, opens their eyes again. It is supernatural, wonderful, miraculous working. Nothing is too hard for God. Look again at your diary this week. Think about those people, that painful relationship that never healed. Nothing is too hard. So there is real hope for us, brothers and sisters. I mean, look across Scotland. Spiritually, it looks bleak. Or at least it does to me. Take Aberdeen, granite in the buildings, and it feels like spiritually granite in the hearts of so many people as they reject Jesus. And that's true across our nation. But this passage said God can make granite and turn it into soap suds. Just blow it away. Your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your best friend, whose heart is hard towards Jesus. God can change that. Who do you know that doesn't know Jesus? And from the outside, you see no hope. These passage, this passage says, keep pressing in, keep praying, keep going. Jesus can do this seemingly to us impossible. He did it for you and he did it for me, right? As he called us. And made us alive to him from being dead rebels. There is life in Jesus because he alone can reverse the irreversible. Nothing is too trivial. Nothing too simple or small. And nothing is too hard. No marital marital strife. No disbelieving child. No loneliness. So keep trusting him in the face of the impossible. In the face of the impossible. Lean in. Trust him. In the simple, in the complex, in the little, in the giant, trust him, lean into him. And with patience and often with tears, keep on hoping and trusting that he can work. As we close, one commentator says this about these two passages. Most basically then this passage or these two passages together are gospel passages. The God of Elisha reverses the laws governing buoyancy for the benefit of the sons of the prophet. And he reverses the power relations between Syria and Elisha through prayer. It looked like Syria had the power and Elisha had none, but he reversed it. He alone can make the blind see and dazzle into blindness those who can see. This is the God who performs the great reversal of raising the dead, raising Israel from death in exile on the far side of the the Jordan and raising true Israel. Raising Jesus from the grave. And so I think as we finish 
this passage, leaving Elisha for now, for now, I think we leave him heading home, do we not? Singing amazing grace. How sweet a sound that saved a wretch like me. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Jesus, this passage should leave you glad. Glad. Rest. Giving thanks that Jesus reversed what ought to have been the irreversible in me. And saved me and delivered me from my sin and from the miry clay. Other circumstances in life will come and go. All where God's hand will be upon them. And whether or not we get the outcome, the deliverance we would have chosen, whether we get that or not, we can rest and be glad that he went there into the grave, into the depths, into the water. That we might be free. He went there for us. Friends, Christ has come. The kingdom has come. We have in Jesus light in the darkness, life in death, sight to the blind, redemption, hope in the place of judgment. We are found rather than lost. He has come. And friends, he is coming. Hold fast to him today. Give him your impossibles, your deepest longing, your darkest nights of the soul. Give them to him for no one, nothing challenges his power. Friends, take heart today, for in the darkest of days, there is life to be found in Jesus alone. For in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And I want you to know today and for always that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen.